Well, if you would, would you take your Bibles and turn to Zephaniah chapter 1. And our text this morning, as we continue to look at this minor prophet, will be verses 7 through 18. I'll just begin before we get into the body of the sermon and the text itself. I think it's appropriate that as we look at what this text exactly begins to address to us, in whom do you place your hope? Whom do you place your trust? And what do you trust in and what do you hope in? Zephaniah is going to call us to examine that very question this morning. Just as a reminder of historical context, Zephaniah, one of the minor prophets, the final prophet to proclaim and prophesy before the Babylonian captivity, he prophesies during good King Josiah's reign when there was reform taking place. He nonetheless is prophesying a warning because though there was reform taking place in Judah, their hearts were yet still far from God. And he begins to address them in three specific areas throughout this text. And that is the civic realm. That would be as like we like to call the civil magistrate. He addresses the religious and he addresses the family. But this morning, he begins to hone down on specifics within those realms. And and this morning, what we will see is not only is he warning all inhabitants of the earth still, but he's going to become more pointed and poignant in specifically going after and warning the religious elite, the rich, and the rulers of Judah. And he is going to warn them of this coming Lord's Day as a means that they would come to repentance and know the Lord. And so let us hear this word of God. In verse 7, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Well, O inhabitants of the mortar, For all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there, a day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind 
so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. On the day of the wrath of the Lord and the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed and full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. This is the word of God. May he bless the reading of it. We see in this text here how in the first verse, few verses, verses 7 through 13, Zephaniah is addressing specifically the religious, the rich, and the rulers. And then he's warning them of this day of the Lord. And we see from verses 14 through 18 that he begins to describe what that day looks like. And so we see it divided in those two sections. But he begins with a call for reverent silence. And it's appropriate in many ways that we start there as well. He says in verse 7, Be silent before the Lord God. That is before Lord Yahweh, the sovereign Lord of the universe. Be silent before Him. So this is a call to reverent silence. And it's a call to reverence before the message of God comes. In other words, Zephaniah is telling those to whom he's going to address, you need to think through the message that I'm about to give. This message comes from a sovereign, merciful, covenant-keeping God. And so what follows is a frightening message from God. It's going to be a warning from God. And so as he asks them to be silent, in many ways, this is... A, 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 a message of mercy. You need to feel the weight of what I'm going to say, and may it lead you to repentance. It's a call of silence. And so may we, this morning, also knowing this is God's Word, that we would be silent before the Word of God. He says, be silent before Yahweh, for the day of Yahweh is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. The the day of the Lord, which is said over and over again in Zephaniah, is referring to that final judgment of God. It's referring to that final judgment when evil is fully and completely eradicated from the world, and he says, this day is near. This day is coming. It's around the corner. You don't know the day. I'm not giving you the day, but you need to know that it's coming. And he uses this language here of sacrifice. He says, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. And then at the beginning of verse 8, he says, and on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, he's referring to what this day will be like and using sacrificial language. What was the sacrifice? Well, it was a, in many ways, it was a, it was a banquet. But it's something that we see here in terms of not only sacrifice and banquet, you'll notice that he Consecrates, that is, he sets aside his, his guests. This is common language that you will find in apocalyptic sections of Scripture. The combination of both sacrifice 
and a meal or a banquet with invited guests or guests that are set aside. In fact, you see this in Revelation 19 in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings and of the captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. You, you often see that combination of sacrificial language with a banquet at the same time. You also see that in Isaiah, you see that in Ezekiel, you see that in other prophets' book. And one thing that we have to understand about sacrifice that would take place in the Old Testament and that idea of the banquet, a meal, is this, is if the meal that was prepared was not fully eaten, what had to happen to the meal? Well, according to Leviticus, it had to be destroyed. It had to be burned up and consumed by fire. And it's important we get that picture here, that that is the picture of what takes place on a day of sacrifice, is not only destruction and slaughter, because that is going to set the tone for what Zephaniah speaks of. But I want you to notice this, we can't escape this. Who is doing the preparing? of the sacrifice according to the text. It's God. God himself is preparing this. He is preparing to bring about destruction. He is the one who is preparing for there to be a consuming under the fire of his wrath. It says he is the one who is bringing this about, meaning this is according to God's plan of what he is doing and what he will bring about. Why was a sacrifice necessary. And why do we see that language of sacrifice? Well, not only because it communicates slaughter and destruction, but sacrifice was what we see throughout the Old Testament, that God's wrath must be appeased in a sacrificial substitute or in the sinner himself. In fact, you see that repeatedly throughout the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, this language that there must be a substitute. You see in Leviticus 17.11, for instance, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. That is a substitute for atonement. That way the sinner and God can be made right with one another. It was necessary that there would be a sacrifice. You see that same language in Hebrews in the New Testament. 9.22 of Hebrews says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That was God's means of atonement. That was God's means of forgiveness, is that there would be a sacrifice, and either... His wrath would be appeased in that substitute, and if it wasn't, that means his wrath would then come down on the sinner himself. Now, I want you to notice, we don't see a substitute here. That's the frightening reality of the day of the Lord, is that the day at the day of the Lord, there will no longer be a substitute provided. And he says, he has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated. That is means to, he has set apart 
his guests. Now, what's amazing about this is, while commentators are divided, the exact nature of what that means and who these guests are, most land on this is that the consecrated guest was Babylon. That Babylon were the invited guest to bring about destruction upon God's chosen people. And as we look at it, if the day of the Lord is that final judgment, we will see this ultimately being worked out actually with the church. What does that mean? Well, the scripture tells us on that final day that the godly, the consecrated guest, will be those that are in Christ that will be judging the nations with Christ himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? When does that take place? Well, it takes place when we are reigning with Christ. You see in Revelation, in chapter 2, same language in verse 26 and 27. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And so while it would be Babylon, the a pagan nation that did not know God, that would be God's instrument of wrath in that final day of the Lord, it will be the church ruling with Christ himself judging the nations. And he says specifically to whom it is he is going to punish here. And this is where we begin. We looked at those three realms or three spheres of government in the world. There's the government of the family. There's the government as in we know in in the sense of that you have a, a government ruling over a people. And then you have the government of the church. We see those three realms. Now he's going to be looking at at the type of people that exist in those three realms. When he says this, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. And so now he's addressing specifically the rulers and those that act like the rulers in wearing foreign clothing. Now in a Corrupt society, we want to note this, is that many in positions of power think that they will escape because of the power that they have, because of the authority they have. They think that they will escape that. But what this teaches us is there will be no escape. It is going to be for everyone. And it even pinpoints the officials and the king's sons. That is those that have been appointed by God to rule over the top of people. That is those that have power in many ways that have prestige, that have been appointed by God himself through that position. Romans chapter 13 verse 1 says this, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So in Judah, all of those that were in a ruling class over people 
Every single one of them had been appointed by God. And we need to take note of that, that there is not a ruler in our society that has autonomously gotten to the position. It doesn't matter if it is a local school board or it is the President of the United States. They have been appointed by God. There's no one that has autonomously just worked their way to those positions. But God has put them there, and so they are held responsible for their positions of power. Now, you have to question this, as if the powerful in this world will not escape, then how will we? Now, their power is derivative. It's not of their own. God gave it to them. And so many that are in positions of prestige and power, where do they place their hope? And that power that they have. Let us be challenged by that. Where is it that you place your hope? Now, notice he describes him. He says that they array themselves in foreign attire. Now, Israel was set apart uh, by law that determined how they behaved, how they worshiped, how they ate, and even to some degree, how they even dressed. And their dress and the way they would wear their hair, it made them recognizable. It set them apart, and they had abandoned that which made them recognizable. Why did they do that? Well, most, most common answer is because they were seeking influence in their, their business and their trade, so they didn't want to hold the marks of Israel and God's covenant people because that way they could have more influence in their trade. But there's a deeper reason, I think, that it begins to hit home with us, is you don't have to have responsibility of God's law. Because if you're marked and set apart by that special dress of Israel and that certain look of Israel that God had commanded in His law, you're not really having to have the responsibility of God's law upon you. No one's expecting it. The reminders that they would carry with them daily, wearing on their heads and on their wrists, they distanced themselves from those things. They sought influence rather than obedience from the Lord. And there's something that makes it so clear here that we have to recognize in Scripture, all rulers will be judged. Now you might think, well, this is speaking to Judah. And they were in a special covenant with God. And that's why they're going to be judged. But what about those that were not? Well, it's true, they, the, the, the kings of Judah... And the rulers in Judah were marked and set apart by a special covenant that the nations were not. But we would be wrong if we thought that those rulers of other nations aren't going to be held responsible. How else do we explain the book of Jonah where Jonah is sent to Assyria so that the king of Assyria might repent? And he does when he hears of the judgment of God. How do we understand the Abrahamic covenant where God says, I am going to punish these other nations that have not known me? You see very clearly that all are held responsible. In fact, Isaiah makes this poignantly clear in Isaiah 13 in verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil. 
That makes it pretty clear. And no one's going to escape that. But we have to say this, for those rulers in Judah, there will be a greater responsibility upon their head, for they knew the word of God, they abandoned the word of God to look like the nations. And what a warning for us today. What a warning for us today. There will be a greater responsibility And I want us to take note of this. There's going to be a greater responsibility for those rulers that claim they know the word of God and yet embrace immorality. There will be a harsher judgment for them. For they have taken God's word and they have twisted it and they have perverted it. And they will be held responsible for that. Now Israel's kings and the rulers of Israel, they were for the establishment of a Davidic kingdom that would bring about the Messiah. But they were also to direct the people in pure worship. And what do I mean by that? The priests were set aside as leading the worship, but the king had this special position over Israel where he was to make sure that the priests were doing what they were to doing. I'm not making a one-to-one correlation on this point, but in many ways, pastors have a similar responsibility. That they have been given the word of God, and they are responsible to lead people in proper worship. Now, what is it that these kings had done? Is they had divested themselves of any identification with Israel and began to look like the world. It's very interesting when you look at the church today versus, say, 30 or 40 years ago, and you look at it, it looks vastly different. Many times it's commented that you still sing hymns, let alone from a book that has those hymns in it. Sometimes it's seen as strange that we gather that way. You seen, have seen over the last several decades, many pastors have abandoned what we once held as treasured. You saw this really take place in the 1990s with the movement of the purpose-driven church, where all of a sudden you had a removal of the pulpit, so there would be no barrier between the pastor and the congregation when actually the pulpit was put in place so that it wouldn't be about the pastor, but it would only be about the Word of God. That's why we have pulpits. I'm not legalistic about this, but you saw all of a sudden... Pastors dressed a certain way to the next day. They were in khakis and a Hawaiian t-shirt. It was 30 years ago. Today it's ripped skinny jeans and a small v-neck shirt that's too small. Well, why did that happen? The reason it happened is this is there was a fundamental misunderstanding of what the church is. In fact, during this movement, the predominant churches did this. They went to the neighborhoods and said, and asked those people that were not believers, what do we need to do to get you to come to church? They filled out their surveys, and then the churches did what? They did those very things. Now, you think about that. 
That's a misunderstanding of what the church is and what we do when we gather. We gather to worship in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He dictates according to his word how he shall be worshipped. So you think of how irresponsible it is to say, go to an unbeliever and say, how do you want us to worship God? And that's how we'll do it. Rather than looking at God's word. In many ways, the church has arrayed itself in foreign attire. What a warning for us. And you see this took place in the church and the worship in verse 9. He says, on that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. And what does that mean? Well, if you go back to 1 Samuel, there was a scene where one of the gods of the Philistines, Dagon, fell over and his head fell off. And, and that was on a threshold of the entrance into their temple well, became superstitious not to step on that threshold. Judah actually incorporated in that into their worship. Let me ask you this. What separates true worship from superstition? There's only one thing that separates true worship from superstition, and that is God's Word. That God's Word tells us how God is to be worshipped. Let me ask you, what man-made things have been included in the pure worship of God? What are those things that we see that have departed from God's Word? Whatever they are, let us be open to examination and humble correction. That where we see, if we are ever out of line with God's Word, that God's Word would correct us. Not only did that happen, did they adopt superstition, it says that those who fill their master's house, and that is the temple likely, the temple courtyard, it says it had been filled with violence and fraud. You see that not only was there superstitions, they had begun to extort the helpless in order that they could get line their pockets with wealth. I have to say in one sense, as they placed their hope in superstitions and as they placed their hope in money because they were extorting people, in some sense, knowing that they're going to be judged has to bring you a sense of comfort, doesn't it? That one day the injustices that people suffer, the helpless suffer at the the hands of, of powerful people that abuse that, Their day's coming. They will stand before the Lord one day. And he specifically begins to narrow this down in verse 10, where he says, On that day, that's referring to the Lord's day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate. That's the main entrance of the north side of Jerusalem. And then he says, On the second quarter, there will be a cry and a loud crash from the hills. That's the section of the north of the temple as well. And then it says, Well, O inhabitants of the mortar. In the King James, if you have that, it says the Mektesh. What is the mortar of the Mektesh? Well, NIV translates it this way. It's the market district, which is an interpretation of what that Hebrew word is. 
And so what's being described here in this north section of Jerusalem is really the Wall Street area. It's the Wall Street of Jerusalem. It's the marketplace. It's the place of commerce. It's that place that would have been marked by booming vibrancy. There would have been business transactions taking place. There would have been interaction. There would have been the beauty that accompanies such a place as that. And what does it say will take place? It will be cut off. It will be silenced. The vibrancy that was will be no more. The lifeblood of the city will be strangled. That's what it says. All who weigh out silver are cut off. The traders, the marketplaces, the banks. And there's a great warning that comes in verse 12. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men. Now God doesn't have to actually search out anyone, but that's just some language that says that no one will escape. It's showing us the thoroughness. That that is, if God looks over Judah, he's going to go through it, uh, building by building with a flashlight, not missing any ground, but he's going to cover it all. And why? He says it's because they are complacent. In verse 12. Now, you, you, you might have in your Bibles a little note or a number there that tells you what complacent means. It says, are thickening on the dregs of their wine, is the little note you might have there. What does that mean? Thickening on the dregs of their wine. Well, it's a metaphor. The dregs are the sediments of grapes that give wine its flavor and its color, and it settles to the bottom. And the good wine is poured off and kept for consumption. And if it's not poured off, what happens to the wine is it begins to spoil it. And so he is saying, you are like the dregs and are spoiling in the wine. And it's specifically defined in this little phrase, the, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. You're just sitting there, acting as if there's no consequences for your life. That's not a denial of God, by the way, is it? In fact, it's an acknowledgement that there's a God. The, the Lord, that is Yahweh, He won't do bad or He won't do good. He, he's just there. That's not a denial of God. It's a denial that God is involved with the world. That's what it's a denial of. It's practical deism. And that's a dangerous place to be. And that's why the imminency of the return is stressed as we see in the New Testament, like a thief in the night, it is near. This is to live as if there's no consequences for our sin. And you can think of many things the way we might approach this as, well, I'll get right with God at some point, or later on down the road, I'll get serious about this business at some point in my life, maybe when I get older and I'm coming to the end, and I can't enjoy things like I did at one time, I'll, I'll get serious with God at that point. Could be, well, God is gracious, God is love, and 
He doesn't really punish. He doesn't really, he's not really just. He's not really holy. He's not really jealous for his name. Or it could be, I'm, I'm actually a good person. And I'm okay with God. But notice what it says. He's going to punish them that would say that. He's going to come after them. In verse 11, he speaks of the banking institutions that are going to be wiped out. What would that do to a society if our banking institutions were wiped out tomorrow? You can just imagine what would take place. Go back in human history, and when the banks are messed with, what happens to a society? It's not good. But he goes on further than that. He says, their goods shall be plundered. This is verse 13. And their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. In other words, the things where you find comfort, the things where you find peace, and those things that you placed your hope in, they're going to be removed. You placed your hope in your home. It's, it's going to be gone. You placed your hope in this vineyard that's going to produce for you wine that you can, you can live off of that. It, it's going to be removed. Not only the banking institutions, but it's saying that these things that you find comfort in, they're going to be taken out, your very livelihood. Now again, we must see fear and we must see comfort from this message. The fear is this, is if you don't know the Lord, there's great fear because you will sit under that day of wrath. But there's also great comfort in this and this, is that there's coming a day where the Lord will right every wrong. There's coming a day where there will be true justice in this world. And that is described in the following verses. In verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. This is the prophet's message. This is also Christ's message, isn't it? This is also the apostles' message, that they continually said, there's day coming a day, live soberly, not as at night, because morning's coming. And look at how it's described, the mighty man. That's that battle-hardened person that has seen it all. He, 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 he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't wince at what he sees when he sees destruction because he's seen it. It says that even that one will well on that day, meaning the, the most battle-hardened of people will be brought to their knees. And the fierceness of this day is described in verses 15 and 16. Notice what it says. It's a day of wrath is that day. It's a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. This is speaking of the fierceness of that day and how frightening that day will be. Now, you'll notice there there's a six repetitions, which sounds like and looks like a reverse, six days of a reversal of creation taking place. And 
Certainly, it would be interesting to look at each phrase of these and compare them to other passages, but I just want to note this one thing. When you look at the day of the Lord, there's something common to the prophets and what we see in Jesus' message in Matthew 24, 25, and then in Mark, and that we see in the book of Revelation, is these astrological signs that are going to take place, that come with the final judgment. And it demonstrates the fearfulness and the fierceness that accompanies that day. But the fact, I just want to point this out, and I hope you, 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 you catch this. The fact that Scripture describes it with various differences in what that day looks like shows that when we interpret these astrological signs, we don't interpret them woodenly, but rather as a demonstration of the fearfulness of God's wrath, which will be so frightening and so calamitous that not even a natural disaster can fully capture what it will look like. Let me ask you, when was the last time one of you stopped a hurricane? When was the last time one of you stopped the darkening of the sky? I think there's eclipse tonight, by the way. How many of us could stop that? That's the point. This is, this is beyond you and I. If we are frightened by the powerfulness of natural disasters and we are helpless at those things, that is what is being described here in this scenario. And as you look at Isaiah, as you look at Joel, as you look at the other places in the book of Revelation and in Matthew, they're all describing the same thing that's going to take place that is showing us it's something that we cannot control. There's been a big movement in Christianity recently to look at the stars, and I I even listened to someone, and this is the sacrifice I go through in preparing a sermon. I sat through about 15 minutes of someone describing, comparing the Bible with NASA's star charts as if we need NASA to interpret the Bible. It's describing the fearfulness of that day. And that's what we need to see, is that you and I could not stand and prevent it from happening. It's something that we cannot control. When God brings it about, it will come. And notice verse 17 tells us why. Why such fierceness? Why why would God, who is merciful and loving and patient, why would He bring this upon mankind? Here's the answer. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because, he's telling us why, I'm doing this because of this reason. They have sinned against the Lord. That's why. God is holy. God is perfect. God is just. God is righteous. Therefore, sin is against His holy nature. And would we all say amen to this, God is just, God is righteous? Then He must, by necessity of His nature, punish sin. Otherwise, we cannot say God is righteous, God is just. 
If God does not actually punish sin, then he's not just. Can you imagine if we had someone that was given power to be over a, a group of people and they, and they were given the sword of justice and they were given the sword of the law and the, the power to, to uphold that law, but they actually didn't punish those that, that executed crimes. We would say, that is a corrupt judge. God is not corrupt. But God is a just God. God's justice is holy, and it's a blind justice. I mean, you can't buy your way out of it. You can't bribe your way out of it. This addresses us so often here because, as it says in verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. You cannot buy your way to heaven. You can't buy your way out of it. It, Like you might, if you had a certain amount of wealth, be able to bribe to protect yourself. You can't do that with God. Where they place their hope? Well, that was the wrong place of hope. There's nothing here where moth destroys, where rust destroys, and where thieves break in and steal, that we can place our hope. But our hope is, treasures, is in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we see here, God's justice is all-consuming. It says, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth an end. What does that mean about God's justice? It's complete. It's thorough. And it will happen. Now that leaves us on a fearful note in many ways, but I want you to go back to verse 7. It says, The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. What do we know about sacrifice? Either the Lord's wrath is appeased in a substitute or his wrath is placed upon the sinner. God's wrath is appeased in a substitute or it is placed on a sinner. In the judgment, God's wrath, that is going to be experienced in times. It will be ushering those that do not know him into an eternal wrath. You'll notice that in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Now, what does that mean, away from the presence of the Lord? That means that the face of the Lord's mercy and grace will be turned from you and you will only see the face of His wrath. Now, a lot of people will see this as, okay, it's away from the presence of the Lord. Well, we have to compare this with Scripture to understand this, because we know that the Lord is omnipresent, so how could He be omnipresent if He wasn't omnipresent? What does this mean? Well, Revelation chapter 14, verse 10 says, He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger, and He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb. 
That eternal destruction, you will wish you could be away from the presence of the Lord's wrath. And it says it's eternal. So the wrath that is experienced on that final day ushers those that do not know the Lord into an eternal wrath. Now, why is it eternal? Why doesn't God just get angry for a hundred years? Why not even a hundred thousand years and then, then say, okay, you've suffered enough, you can move on. The very reason is because we are finite. We are finite. And it's why in the Old Covenant, as we look in the Old Covenant, there was sacrifices continually given. You see in Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make those make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Here it is. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. God's wrath is an eternal wrath. We are not eternal. We will live for eternity. But only one that is eternal can suffer an eternal wrath in the place of another. You see, we need a substitute. We need one that will bear that wrath of the day of the Lord on our behalf. Or we will have to face it ourselves. And it would be like us facing a hurricane, but beyond any hurricane that this world has ever seen. And that one that never stops, and one that never dissipates its power, but is all-consuming and continually forceful. We need a substitute. We need the eternal Son of God who became man and yet is God. God who took on true humanity suffered in his humanity, and bore the eternal wrath of God upon the cross. Just as John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is the one to whom we look. You see, there is coming a sacrifice that the Lord warns us about, and we will either suffer the eternal, all-consuming wrath of God, or it has been suffered in our place. And so as we look at this coming day of wrath that's coming, we need not fear if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He suffered in your place. He has taken your sins. And if you're sitting here this morning and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's such a refreshing thing to know you're forgiven in Jesus. Your guilt's no longer upon you. You have the righteousness of Christ. You are a child of God by adoption. But if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that day's coming. It's near. It's hastening. And it's coming quick. And as Zephaniah began this message, he started off with this. Be silent before the Lord. Let me ask you, friends, this morning, in whom have you placed your hope? 
Where does your hope lie? If it's in the things of this world, we see that those will cease. If it's in our power and in our position or in our wealth or in the things that we have, those things will go away. In whom have you placed your hope this morning? May it be the Lord Jesus Christ who calls you to come to him, to believe upon his name. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are holy, you are perfect. We praise you that, yes, this day is a frightful day that we consider, but a day where we know that you and your holy, perfect justice will right every wrong. Where your enemies, those that stood against you, where they will get their justice. But Father, we know that if it wasn't for your grace, we would be deserving of that wrath. We know that if you were not merciful and patient with us, we would be waiting for that day with trembling. And so we praise you that in your grace, we do not have to fear that day, but we actually pray for it. Lord Jesus, come. And may that be the prayer of our hearts today. Lord Jesus, come. It's in his name we pray. Please stand.